Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Northminster Church this morning, whether you are joining us in person or online. We are so glad that you are here today. Uh, As you can tell from my uh, throne, um, I am still not quite up to standing to do much of anything for a very long period of time, and getting up in the pulpit this morning was a little more than I could take. So... I'm going to be doing most everything from here today. I will stand as much as I can, um, but I am very thankful to Debbie and to DH for not only acquiring my throne for me, uh, but they're going to be uh, helping with communion. Um, Hopefully, I will be back up and able to stand for all things in a few weeks, but for now, just going to take it easy. So uh, those of you with mobility issues, bless your hearts. It is so much work and is so exhausting, and I have a new appreciation. Several things I want to make you aware of. Uh, The first is if you would please pass the worship registry down your row. Make sure you fill those out so we know who's here this morning. Also, um, as you look at your order of worship this morning, there is a whole list of upcoming events. Uh, Probably the most important one being our business meeting coming up. Um, Beyond just a good time of fellowship and a nice meal, we will be uh, talking in detail about the work of the church which, of course, not always particularly interesting, but very important. So please make plans to be here for that. And before you know it, we will be uh, to the point of Holy Week and Easter and all of the celebrations that come with that. So make sure those are on your calendar. Uh, Kids, when you come up for the children's message, just come sit around my chair. Um, I'm not going to try to get up and down off the stairs because I don't need to fall down again. Um... And as you're taking communion, you just walk right past me. Just act like I'm not here and just keep on going. All right, now with all of that said, let's take a deep breath together. I don't know about all of you, but it has been quite a week in our household. Uh, Our little house is not set up to be uh, ADA friendly. And there's been a level of challenge I am not used to. Those things happen in our daily lives. We find challenges we did not know existed because one thing changes. That's all okay, but it takes a lot out of us. So take a deep breath. Allow your mind and your heart and your body to catch up with each other. Let that breath quiet your thoughts. Let it help you focus. Let it give you a moment to be present with where you are. Let it brush away as many distractions as it can. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list, breathe out the dishes in the sink, breathe out the laundry that's not done. Breathe in the love and the support and the joy of being in a place where you don't have to pretend you just get to be you, and you're loved no matter what. And then let us worship God together by joining in our call to worship. The dust that shapes the journey. The color that surrounds it. The the word that foretells it. This is Lent, and into its wilderness, God calls us.
So this morning, I want to talk to you about something really, really special that I got to do back in January. I got to go to a place called Cuba. Have you all heard of Cuba? Some of you? Okay. Does anybody know where Cuba is? Where is it? Mm-hmm. Where else? What is it close to? Do you know? What is it close to, Ryder? Uh, what did you say that again? It's not in Mexico. They do speak Spanish there. Let me show you. Has anybody heard of Florida? Does everybody know where Florida is? Okay. So here is the very end of Florida, right? Because it kind of comes down into a point, and there's Cuba. Did you realize it was that close? Well, it's even close. Yeah, it's close to the Bahamas, but it's very, very close to the United States. So it's a whole other country that close to the United States. Did you realize that? It's its own country. It is its whole own country. Okay, so I printed this so you could see. Where are we? Show me, Marley, where are we? Right there, because there's Baton Rouge. So here's Louisiana, and there's Cuba. Okay, y'all see? All right, last one I'll show you, and then we're going to talk a little bit. This is the island of Cuba. I have a much bigger map, but I didn't think I could get it refolded. So uh, I'll put it up somewhere so you can see it. But here is the island of Cuba, and this is where we went, Ciego de Avila. This is where this church, our church, has a sister church, partner church. We use a lot of different words, but our friends live right there. We also went down to Camagüey. We visited there. But most of the time we were in Cuba, we were in Ciego de Avila, which is right there. So, from Monroe to Ciego de Avila, does anybody want to guess how far that is? What do you think? Oh, more than that. What do you think? Three days? I think if you were, if you were driving, but you can't really drive to Cuba. We flew there. You have to fly there. What do you think? I think if you like, flew there on, on the airplane, it would probably take a, about probably a, some, somewhere around 280. 280 hours? Minutes? Uh, probably miles. Miles. Okay. Well, from Monroe, here in Monroe, to Ciego de Avila is over 1,000 miles. So it's pretty far away, even though... It looks pretty close to Florida, but from that very tip of Florida that I showed you, right, right here, this little tip of Florida, because there's the city of Miami, we've all heard of Miami, but from there to Cuba, want to guess how many miles it is? What do you think? Oh, less than that. What do you think? Less than that? How many? Even a little bit less than 100. Almost, it is 90 miles. It is 90 miles from that very tip of Florida to Cuba, which is closer than we are to Shreveport. Have y'all all been to Shreveport before? Yeah, or at least driven through it, going somewhere else. So Cuba, from that very, very bottom part of Florida, is only an hour and a half if you could drive it, which is really close, but it is a totally different country. And more important than that, it is like a totally different world. So not only do they speak Spanish in Cuba, 
There are a lot of things they don't have in Cuba. So this is going to sound kind of gross, and I don't mean to be gross, but it makes my point really clearly. When you go to the restroom and you sit down to go to the potty, is there usually a seat on the potty? Yeah, usually a seat on the potty, right? And you usually have toilet paper, don't you? People in Cuba don't necessarily have those. So there were lots of places that we went that you didn't have a toilet seat. Or, yes, that was the same face I made. And you had to take your own toilet paper with you because you might not have any. Now, would that make you a little bit grouchy if you had to deal with that every day? Yeah. And what if the thing that you ate most often was rice and beans? Would y'all be excited about that? You would be. You like rice and beans? So if it was rice and beans, but it didn't have any cheese and it didn't have any salt on it, what do you think? Would you be a little bit grouchy? Yeah, maybe. And if getting around was really hard, like your family didn't necessarily have a car and you had to walk pretty much everywhere, do you think you'd be a little grouchy? And remember, it's hot in Cuba, right? If you've been to Florida, you know it's hot in Florida. It's hot in Cuba. It got the coldest it's probably ever been while we were there, and it was in the 50s. Didn't snow. You didn't need jackets, although a lot of the Cuban people were wearing big, heavy jackets. That's as cold as it's really ever gotten. It's down in the 50s. So imagine having to walk in the heat, because that's all you got. Would you be grouchy? Probably. But here's the thing. Cuban people aren't. They are kind, and they are patient, and they are loving, and they, do you know what the phrase roll with the punches mean? When they have a challenge, they just keep going. They're kind of used to doing without, but they don't have a bad attitude about it. They just keep going, and they share with other people, they take care of each other, and they are kind. And that's really important for us to remember. We have a lot of things here. We all have a lot of stuff. We all can go to the bathroom, and there's probably going to be toilet paper. They don't necessarily have that in Cuba, and yet they love each other. So I want you to think about that this week. Think about some of those things that you might take for granted. Next time you go to the bathroom, think about it. And just remember, we have friends who love us and care for us and who we love and care for in Cuba that don't have those things, and yet they're good and kind and lovely people. So I want you to think about that this week. Now, let's say our prayer together. I want all of you to turn around, face the congregation. If you're new to this, it's okay. Everybody else will show you how to do it. Go ahead and face them. It's all right. Now, I will say the first line of our prayer. You say it back to me nice and loud. Adults, you are welcome to join in. Ready? I see the face of God in you. Kids, I think you can be louder. The love of Christ comes shining through. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. O holy child of God. O holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats. Thank you.
A reading from Psalms chapter 45. O God, your throne is eternal. You will rule your kingdom with a scepter of justice. You have loved what is right and hated what is evil. That is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness and lifted you above your companions. Word from the psalmist for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. We give you thanks, O Lord our God, for the many ways in which you bring together a community to glorify your name and to work toward your purpose. You invite, you make room, you gather us in, even those who never expected to be allowed to join. We ask your help this day for those people who have believed they aren't good enough to belong, those who have been excluded or rejected, those who have never experienced a joyful or generous welcome. May they find themselves in a place made for them at your table. We ask your help this day for those who struggle to do what is right, those who find the clothes of humility or graciousness uncomfortable, those who have benefited from the status quo and so chose to avoid self-reflection or accountability. May they be encouraged and strengthened to be doers of your word, not only hearers. We ask your help this day for those who offer hospitality to others, those who give of themselves, those who create places and opportunities for community to be built. May they be supported and empowered to be truly inclusive and welcoming. We ask your help this day for all of those on our prayer list, for Bill Crutzer, for Jimmy Curry, for Mary Dale Hughes, for Lowry and Barbara Thompson, for Welton and Judy Gaddy, for Tracy and Mary Sandow, for Buddy Alds, Kay Southern, Cade Stapleton, Dwayne Cruz, Jay Aro, Judy Eddington, our friends in Cuba, and for all of those who are not named. May they be filled with your grace and peace, your compassion, your justice, your healing, and your knowledge for the future. We pray these things in the name of the one who comes and is our friend and our companion. Amen.
Gospel of Matthew. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his workers to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other workers, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his workers and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his workers, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. They went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get to get in here without a wedding robe? Bind him hand and foot, he said, and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel of our Lord. pray together. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, and may we hear a word from you today. Amen. So I think we've been together long enough for me to say to you that this parable that we just heard from the Gospel of Matthew is ugly. It is ugly, it is violent, it is dark and uncomfortable. And unlike Luke's version of this story that feels much more familiar, 
This parable brings up uncomfortable and very difficult questions. One of the commentators I read this week called these verses a bizarre little story that leaves us rightly mystified, and he is exactly right. If anything, this parable feels much more like those painful stories in the Old Testament that we preachers tend to avoid. Uh, Cain's murder of Abel, the Judges 19 story about the concubine. Her master sends her out in his place to placate a violent crowd. She is so severely sexually assaulted, she dies. And then her master cuts up her body and sends it to different parts of the Israelite community. I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) Jephthah's sacrifice of his only daughter to uphold his vow made to God that allowed him to feed the Ammonites. Tamar's rape by her half-brother Absalom in 2 Samuel. It's easy for us to confine these stories to the Old Testament, to think of them as part of ancient history and culture, to see that violent, angry God as having new expression through Jesus. And while that is true, Jesus is God expressed in a relational, tangible form, the New Testament is not free of mistreatment or violence or death. Recall Jesus calling the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 a dog, or telling people they're, far, they're from the father, the devil, in John 8. Remember the beheading of John the Baptist because of the whim of a young girl. Remember the deaths of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, In Acts 5, they lie to the Apostle Peter about the sale of a piece of property, and when he confronts them, they fall down dead. And these are examples, these examples are to say nothing of how the final judgment is described in the New Testament. Uh, If you haven't read the book of, of Revelation, it bursts with gruesome scenes of cosmic battles, plagues, and bloodshed. And while some will argue that Revelation is an outlier, there's nothing else like it in the New Testament. According to Shelley Matthews, who is a professor at Bright Divinity School, it is better to understand the book of Revelation as fully at home within the New Testament apocalyptic longing for God's violent judgment against non-believers. Paul imagines Christ at the end of time handing over the kingdom to God, but only after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. And that's from 1 Corinthians 15. In 2 Thessalonians 15, it promises a final judgment with Jesus revealed in flaming fire and inflicting the punishment of eternal destruction. I mention all of these examples to point out that our concept of the Old Testament being full of violence and a God we can't understand while the New Testament is full of Jesus' love and Paul's long-winded explanations about the nature of grace isn't exactly accurate. And in fact, we shouldn't be surprised to find this ugly parable here in Matthew's Gospel. This ugly parable that seems on the surface to be a cautionary tale about ever going to or throwing a wedding reception. But as you know well, we can't just pick verses out of the Bible if we want to have a robust, thoughtful conversation with Scripture. 
And as much as I would like to avoid this parable from a preaching standpoint, if we can wrap our heads around Jesus telling this bizarre little story, there is something for us to learn here. Now, the first step in making sense of this parable is being mindful that though Jesus is the one speaking, his megaphone, if you will, his amplifier, is Matthew, who is writing for a community in conflict. As you know, as you remember, Matthew's gospel is often thought of the most Jewish because it's written to a community who understand themselves to be faithful Jews responding to the call of the Messiah. Now, by this point in the gospel, we are catching a glimpse of the low point in an intense family feud. Though, let's be clear that this is not a Christian versus Jew situation. Such language and division didn't clearly exist yet. That was part of the problem. But more like an intramural conflict within Judaism. You had what we would define as traditional Jews follow the teachings of the Torah. And then you have Jews who have heard of this Jesus guy, think he has something to offer. And they're trying to figure out how to live together, how to have faith together. It caused a lot of problems. Now, this is likely a personal, painful rift over, as Matthew says in the parable, the other group's unwillingness to respond to God's summons to the kingdom banquet offered in honor of Jesus. And as you know, the metaphor of a wedding banquet is biblically important and quite common. This is a culture that understands the realities of food insecurity as at least three out of ten years, there is a drought around this time. So too is this a culture that understands fat feasting, as the Israelites are told in Deuteronomy 14, that if they don't pay their taxes once every three years, they don't have to, but they are to have a feast. Isaiah talks about feasting. Banquets are mentioned throughout the Gospels, and even Revelation 5 speaks of a heaven being a feast. Feasting is a way of learning to fear the Lord, and mandates we feast, God mandates we feast at least every once in a while, so as to understand God's goodness and abundance. Matthew's inclusion of this wedding feast parable is completely in keeping with biblical tradition, and yet the voice he gives Jesus is disturbing. As Rolf Jacobson of uh, one of the podcasts I listened to puts it, Matthew isn't painting with pastels, but using screaming, bold, flaming colors. This gospel writer isn't letting us settle comfortably into his story. And as with Jesus' words about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin, or his parable about the unforgiving servant whose debt to his master is in the billions, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, this story is also extreme. But before we decide that this is Matthew working out some rhetorical violence against opponents— and assuring his own community that they are on the right side of salvation history, we should read the story to the end. A finale is coming, and it is a doozy. So, after the first round of invited guests shows up, they refuse to show up at the wedding feast, some going as far to kill the messengers the king sends to invite them, 
The king in Jesus' parable not only has his vengeance on those who murdered his servants, he opens his invitation to people off the street. All who were, in, were found were invited, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Then we hear the most inexplicable, the, the hardest to understand part of this parable. Encountering one of the guests, the king says to him, friend, how did you end up here without a wedding garment? Or, this is a black tie affair. Why aren't you in a tux? What the man, the man he's talking to is speechless. And the king says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And my immediate response, and perhaps yours is too, of course this poor man is not dressed properly. Doesn't keep black tie and tails on him. You've just invited him off the street last minute. Where is he supposed to get a top hat? The king's response makes no logical sense, but then we have to remind ourselves that this is an allegory. This is not realism. That's what's calling the shots here. To put it another way, there is a logical step missing between the king's expectation and what this man would have been capable of. But this is a parable. And it does not play with the same rules that we are accustomed to in logical discourse. It doesn't necessarily have to make sense. This parable is a sharp reminder that God is not tame or domestic, but as wild and dangerous as the God of the Old Testament. To join with this God is to risk something. It's through Jesus we have a relationship with this wild, undomesticated entity. But it would be a mistake to think that our open invitation to God's banquet implies a lack of preconditions. The king in Jesus' parable is no pushover. Despite his guests being beneficiaries of his invitation, they must nevertheless be on guard against the complacency shown by the first invitees. For Matthew's community, this is a warning against self-satisfaction. And it's a reminder to live up to the righteous standards of higher righteousness. For us, this story forces us to ask, how do we carry ourselves now that we're at the banquet? Discipleship doesn't end with saying yes to Christ. It only begins there. In fact, discipleship is being accountable to each other and to Christ from our yes onward. Does that mean that what we wear to church on a Sunday morning matters? Of course not. But should you accept a God's freely, should you accept, expect, should you expect to accept God's freely extended invitation without having to change anything about yourself? No. Or as scholar Lance Papp says, the problem with this wedding guest is not that he's not taking things seriously. No, the problem is a, f- is a failure to party. The kingdom of heaven is a banquet, after all, and you've got to put on your party dress and get with the program. The kingdom music is playing, and it's time to get up on the dance floor, or as the slightly sober but no less theologically astute Karl Barth put the matter, 
In the last resort, it all boils down to the fact that the invitation is to a feast and that he who does not obey and come accordingly and therefore festively celebrate declines and spurns that invitation no less than those who are unwilling to obey or and appear at all. My friends, the good news this morning is that this ugly parable reminds us to party, to be festive, to be active participants in the banquet God is throwing and invites all people to do the same. It invites us to be open to change and the influence of a wild, untamed God. I realize it's a risk to encourage this group in particular to go uh, anywhere near a dance floor to break the rules, because I'm sure you probably will. But this is a celebration we're being invited to. It's free to enter. There is a table set up with food. The only thing you need to be aware of, besides putting on your party dress is that once you've entered this party, it requires nothing less than your whole life. Amen.
whatever wilderness the Spirit has brought you to. Walk in boldness as a beloved child of God. Walk in peace under the shelter of the eternal. Walk in faith knowing Christ walks with you. Go in peace. Amen.